apathy, ignorance, purposelessness, priorities, fear, rebellion, self-righteousness, bondage, and oppression. Everyone in this room owns at least one of these. Most of us probably own more than one, maybe two or three or possibly even four of these kinds of sins are dominant and predominant in our life in some fashion. And they exist there, they live there, they're very comfortable there, and we've not taken them on. We've not heard the Holy Spirit speak to us about them. We resist him when he does want to speak to us about them. And as a result of that, we do not live our Christian life optimally. And as a result of that, we cannot produce the kind of fruit that, that Christ calls us to produce. And so maybe then we should read John 15 one more time about Jesus being the vine and the branches and how he prunes those branches so that they produce fruit. And those branches that refuse to produce fruit, he cuts off. So you think, well, you kind of hit me hard this morning. I'm just relaying to you what the scriptures teach. It's probably because there have been too many pastors that, love, that want the love of their people too much that they soft sell the biblical truths. And I'm not loving you or anyone else if I soft sell to you the biblical truths. And, and trust me when I say it hits me just as hard as it might be hitting you. Because if it doesn't hit me that hard, then I'm a hypocrite. And I guess I am a hypocrite sometimes. But I don't always want to be a hypocrite. And I, I bet that that's true of you. So the second question is, why do those sins rest, uh, reoccur and are still there? And so I spent some time last week talking about repentance. So there's repentance when we are a non-believer and we hear the gospel and the Holy Spirit speaks to us and we repent of our rebellion to God and we come to faith. But then in a sanctifying way, there's that repentance too. That in order to be sanctified, to be made over into the image of Christ, to become holy, separate for a special purpose, that there has to be daily repentance. So if you have a regular time where you pray and spend time with God, whether that's in the morning or in the evening, repentance ought to be a regular part of every Christian's life. And I'm assuming that at the end of every, everyone's day here, there probably are some things that you can look back on over the course of the day that we're not very proud of. Things that we've thought, things that we've said, things that we did, and that we should repent of those things. And one of the great disciplines, so, you know, two weeks ago when I spoke, um, Rocky and a number of other people said to me, well, you, we want you to spend some time on how. How do you get to what, what, what you've been talking about? And so this is kind of the how portion of that. And so I would say this. I would say that God is worth the effort. 
in our Christian life is worth the effort, that before we fall to sleep at night, that we kneel beside our bed and we repent as we pray. We look back over the course of our day. We celebrate what can be celebrated because I am sure there are things that can be celebrated. But then we focus on those one or two things that we said we did that we did not do and we repent and we fall to sleep with a clear conscience knowing that we spent time in the presence of God and we sought his forgiveness. See these little kneelers right here? I have one of these in every bedroom of my home to put beside the bed. Now, I'll have to be honest with you, I don't use them like I should. But I will tell you that when they are beside the bed, they are this incredible reminder that I should kneel and I should pray and I should give thanks and I should praise and I should repent. You can buy those kneelers. If any of you want those kneelers, I'll tell you where you can get one. Just like when you get up at night to go to the bathroom, don't trip and fall over them because then you might. So yeah, you gotta, you gotta figure that part out though. <laughs> so just very quickly then, this is the anatomy of repentance. That we become aware of our sin in our lives and we, we would want to be aware of the sin in our lives. We desire to know what the sin is in our lives because then we know how we are living a life that's not as pleasing to Christ as we, it could be. Then when we become aware of that, then we, we experience the guilt that's associated with that. Like, yeah, I, I, that's wrong. I, sh I should not have said that. I should not have done that. I should have done that. I should have said that. And then conviction. Like, uh, you know, like, oh, I got to make this change. I got to, I got to, this has to be, this, this can't continue to live in my life. And then confession. Father God, forgive me for saying this. Because I did. Forgive me for doing this because I did. And then contrition. And that's the part where our heart is wounded. There's angst there because we understand that we have frustrated this God who loves us, who cares about us, who died for us. And really, this sort of gets to what I want to talk about in just a moment or two about our heart. Because contrition is always about the heart. And if there is no contrition in the act of repentance, then there is no heart. And there will never be real change without contrition and engaging our heart and, and feeling the angst, feeling badly about what it is that we have done. And we know a little bit what that's like. We know that when we speak sharply to somebody and we see the shock on their face and we realize that we should not have said what we said. And then we feel contrition. And then we seek forgiveness and we ask them, but it's clear in our heart. Uh, we, I, we had this relative who had a couple of boys and the boys were messing around. One of them got hurt and the, and the mother said, 
Um, now tell your brother that you're sorry. He said, sorry, and then he ran off, you know. There was no contrition there. Simply saying that you're sorry doesn't count. There has to be contrition. The seeking of forgiveness and then repentance. And when repentance happens, then there's, then there's restoration. Then there's restoration. And that should be something that all of us should desire because sin does alienate us. It drives us away from Christ. It separates us. It creates a barrier. An unresolved sin creates a bigger and bigger barrier and creates blind spots in our lives. And those blind spots not only affect our relationship with Christ, but those blind spots affect our relationship with each other. Unresolved sin creates blind spots in our lives, not only between us and Christ, but between each other. And we've all said, you know, that person's a wonderful person, but so help me, they are as blind as can be about this part of their life. I don't know why they don't see it. So now I want to get to the heart. Maybe some of you remember years ago, this would have been back in 1992, so that would have been 30-some years ago, when Woody Allen, a director, producer in Hollywood, had an affair with his adopted daughter, Sun Yi. And um, so he was, I think, living with Mia Farrow for 12 years, and, uh, and they adopted a bunch of children. One of them was Sun Yi. And Woody Allen, who was uh, well along in years, had this affair with his adopted daughter, Sun Yi. And so when people asked him, like, what, what, why did you do that? His response was, the heart wants what the heart wants. There is no logic. And so... He rationalized and justified what he did with Sun Yi, his adopted daughter, simply because <coughs> his heart wanted it. And you think, well, how horrible, how horrible that would be, or that is, right? You think, what's, how could anybody do that? But the truth of the matter is, Almost everyone here, on some level, operates with that same kind of ethic. That the reason why, as Paul was talking about, I don't know why I do the things I do. I know it's the sin. It's his heart. I don't know why the things I do. It's my heart. My heart wants it. And even though I rationally know that it's destructive to me and destructive to others, I know it logically, I still give in to what my heart wants. And so I allow myself to do things that I would not normally do because my heart wants it. Now the Bible talks about the heart, and the Greek word for heart is Cardia, so cardiologist. Uh, the word cardia and cardiologist comes from the Greek word cardia, which means heart. 
And so these are the three primary meanings of the word heart in the Greek. So when you read in the scripture, and the scripture has an awful lot to say about the heart, our heart. So it means as the seat of desires, feelings, affections, passions, and impulses. So that's how our heart acts out. The seat, the very seat, the very place where it's, it exists, it's rooted in. The desires, feelings, affections, passions, and impulses. It also means the seat of the intellect, meaning the mind or our understanding. And then in a more metaphorical fashion, it means the middle or central part of something, which is how we understand our heart, that it's in the middle of our bodies, and so we call it the heart. The seat of the desires, feelings, affections, passions, and impulses. That's where our sin is as well, the desires for that. So we cannot change any of that unless we change the seat of our desires, feelings, affections, passions, and impulses. None of that will change. Our growth and maturation in Christ, our ability to produce fruit for Christ, our punishment or rewards before Christ are all predicated on the nature of the heart, the condition of the heart. It's all of that. If we're going to grow, mature, it has to do with our heart. If we're going to produce fruit, it has to do with our heart. And when we stand before the Lord and receive either punishment or reward for whomever that is, it will be because of the condition of the person's heart. Remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes in Matthew 6.21? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, for some of us, there are certain sins that are treasures to us. It's just the truth. If we're just honest, it's just the truth. And that's not, where, that's not me trying to be dark or, or discouraging or whatever. It's just the obvious truth. That some of us treasure certain things that really are sinful things. <clears throat> meant a lot of those treasures are good things that we use badly. They are good things that are expressed in a disproportionate fashion. Sex is a good thing. God created it. But for some people, that's their treasure. Money is a good thing. There's a lot of good things that we can do with our money, but when we live it out in a disproportionate fashion, when we are greedy, that's where our treasure is. And, and because it's in our heart, everything else revolves around it. And so it impacts our relationship with Christ and our relationship with others. So recalibrating the heart necessarily means recalibrating our life and faith. <coughs> 
our hearts need to be recalibrated. You know, Ezekiel tells us that when Christ comes to us, he says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So obviously there's a lot of metaphor going on here, but the gist of what he's saying is that prior to Christ, we have hearts of stone. Our hearts cannot receive the things of God. It's too hard. And so God works and moves in our life, and he gives us a heart of flesh. But that's an already and not yet thing. So it's already in the sense that if we were to die as, as believers, that that because we have a heart of flesh in which his Holy Spirit lives, then, then we have eternal life. But it's a not yet thing in the sense that in this life, we're still trying to divest ourselves, shed the old man and let the new man, the old heart, and let the new heart come into play. So everyone here, including myself, there are still parts of our heart that is made of stone, and it's resistant to the things of God. And we need the Holy Spirit to complete the conversion of our heart from stone to flesh. You know, there are about 700,000 people a year who die from heart disease. That's 20% of all deaths in the United States are related to heart disease every year. But notably, fully 100% of those who die a spiritual death die from heart disease. Fully 100%. Those aren't good odds. Those are terrible odds. But because those people who die a spiritual death have not had their heart converted from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Solomon tells us in Proverbs, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And that's the ESV version. It's kind of interesting to look at it in the different versions, and I'll show them to you. The NIV says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Our lives are reflective of what the nature of our heart is. The message, written by Eugene Peterson, says, Keep vigilant watch over your heart. That's where life starts. Our enemy wants your heart. He wants to not just have it, he wants to consume it. He wants to turn your heart into him. And so, unless we resolve the stony parts of our heart, then there may be parts that are more reflective of him than they are reflective of Christ. Does anybody want that? 
Look, these are all hard issues. Apathy, complacency, ignorance, apathy, like who cares? Complacency, I'm satisfied. Ignorance, I don't care to know anything more. Purposelessness, like I, I, you know, I don't really care that I have this purpose, this, this thing that God's created me for. Priorities, I want to do what I want to do, not what God wants me to do. <coughs> Fear, a lack of courage. The word courage comes from the word cardia. Rebellion, I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what God thinks. Self-righteousness, I'm better than anybody else. I've arrived. Bondage, I've given my heart over. Oppression, my enemy is consuming my heart by trying to oppress me. It's all heart issues. So when I've asked anybody here if one or more of these things are a regular part of our life that are unresolved, I'm saying to you they are heart issues. And they must be resolved. We and this church can never move forward until we deal with our heart more and better than what we do. You know, I don't know how many of you know this. Back in 2002, I wrote a book uh, for Zondervan. And the book was entitled, Help, I'm a Small Church Youth Worker. As part of my research for the book, I think that it's called uh, like the Albion Research Institute, which specializes in doing research for small churches. So there are people out there who just research the nature of small churches, try to find out what their distinctives are and how you do ministry in them and things like that. So of the many things that I discovered as I did that research, they made this distinction between small churches and large churches. So, for example, a large church is a corporation. So in large churches, for example, of 800 or 1,000 or more, when the pastor wants people to know stuff, he sends out uh, a memo, right? So if I sent you a memo, you'd be offended by it. Um, and, so, and so there's some very clear distinctives between a small church. So here's one of them. A small church tends to be more familial, like a big family. A large church tends to be more like a corporation, a business. So you can manage people more efficiently. But here's the other one. They said this very clearly. People from small churches do not want to be inspired they want to be comforted. They said, what happens is, is that, is that small church people tend to, they just want, they want the preaching, they want the hospital visits, they want you to be there during the weddings and the baptisms and things like that, uh, but they really don't want to hear, look, we've got to take this hill. This is a huge issue. This is what God has called us to. we got to make this happen. Large churches tend to have people more like that. That's what they said. And I will have to say, that is largely true. I've been in seven or eight different churches over the years, pastored, and it's largely true. 
So my question for you this morning, as you ponder this idea about the importance of our heart, what, what kind of church are we? Are we the kind of church that just wants to be comforted? Or are we a church that has this added component where we want to take this hill? Like God has a very clear purpose for us as a church, let alone for us as individuals. And that our speciality is, and because that's our speciality, we are going to do that and en masse, we are committed to that. And that we are inspired to make that happen. That's why somebody came up with this helpful but kind of pejorative term called the Pareto Principle. The Pareto Principle is that 20% of the people do all the work and 80% of the people do the balance. And then the 80% of the people do, uh, you know, they only do like 20% of the work and the, the 20% do 80% of the work. So that's the Pareto Principle. And it was designed, it was articulated particularly for churches. And that's largely true. Of all the churches I've been a part of, that's largely true. I think our percentages is a little higher here. Do you want to be inspired? Do you believe that God has for us a bigger overarching purpose than to come Sunday morning to worship and to live in a kind of safe little community? Or is there something a bit bigger so that we not only have a pastoral function, but we also have a prophetic function? Thus says the Lord in this community in which we live. Those are all heart issues. And if those things exist in us, then we have a heart problem. So moreover, these are other things that can be a problem with the heart. Hearts can be wounded. Hearts can be bitter. Hearts can be angry, hearts can be hard, hearts can be dull, hearts can be conflicted, hearts can be critical, hearts can be arrogant, and hearts can be curmudgeon-y. A curmudgeon is a person that kind of has like a sour view on life, you know? Um, the, the more extreme form is, have you ever bumped into a person that nothing is right unless everything is wrong. Like, you know, if something's right, they can't, they're not happy. They just can't be happy. Something has to be wrong, you know, and so they're a curmudgeon. Now, <laughs> these things are all present in every church. I guess the difference is to what degree But these are hard issues. There are 
other aspects to our heart too. There are some people who cannot let things go. In fact, that really dominates many people's lives. There was some way in which they were victimized, some way in which they were hurt, or whatever, and man, they build their life around that very thing. Have you ever seen these kinds of people before? And some of them are Christians, and they are utterly blind to that aspect of their life. I remember years ago, um, there was this very prominent Christian leader in Pittsburgh who had tremendous influence uh, in the Pittsburgh region with the kind of work that he did. And it was particularly in youth ministry. And uh, he, um, all of us who were young in ministry wanted to be around him. We kind of really wanted his attention. We wanted his approval. And I was probably one of those guys where, you know, at least in terms of how I was perceived, and maybe even in terms of the kind that the, the effectiveness of my work, I, I was probably a second or t third tier kind of guy. I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily the guy who was top drawer, at least according maybe to this person and people like him. So when I ended up in Lancaster, Ohio, we had a senior pastor there who just gave tremendous freedom to do all kinds of really exciting things. And so our ministry there really took off. And so I would still network with people, with youth ministers back here in Pittsburgh. And sometimes we would end up in the same place where this really prominent Christian leader would be. And I remember walking up to him one time, and he said to me, I knew you when you were nothing. And I, I mean, it was about that loud, too. And it's amazing how the Holy Spirit gives you words that you don't anticipate. Because I said to him, nothing's changed. <laughs> and he looked at me kind of quizzically, like, what do you mean by that? You know, and I meant exactly what I meant by it. Nothing has changed. Now, I could have allowed that to be really, I mean, and he would say that in front of my, my colleagues. And I could have allowed that to become something that was really hurtful. But again, the Holy Spirit really moves in your life and allows you to let it go. Let go the ways in which you've been wounded. Let go the ways in which you are bitter. Let go the ways in which you are angry. Let go the ways in which your heart might be hard. Let it go. Let go your commitment to being dull. Let go to being conflicted. Let go of your critical heart. Let go of your arrogance. Let go of being a curmudgeon. Let it go. Because as long as you allow those things to exist in your heart, the enemy has a lot of control over who and what you are and what you do. Surrender your failures. Surrender your disappointments. Surrender your regrets, your anger, rage, grudges, resentments. Surrender the failures that you see in others. Surrender past and current conflicts to Christ. Surrender them and pray. Pray. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me.
Create, within, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This has to be our prayer. This has to be a priority. The way forward for us in terms of our faith as individuals, the way forward in terms of this church is to have clean hearts and to allow God his way and to surrender those things that our hearts can be, to surrender those other things, those failures and disappointments and regrets, to surrender all of that and to allow God to come in and into our heart to refresh us, to make us new so that we might have a, a right spirit within us. That is what those people on our property will need to see four hours from now. That is what our family needs to see, our children, our grandchildren. And that, that is what we will offer to Christ when we stand before him to give an account for what we have done with our lives, our hearts. What will your heart look like? Will it still be a little stony or will it be all flesh? Will it be clean or will it still be dirty? <laughs>